But good morning, good morning. Oh, you guys talk back, I like that. I am thankful to be here with you this morning. This is always a pleasure and a privilege for me to remember that Christ's kingdom extends beyond Hutchison, right? More than anything, I'm grateful for this pulpit. Um, ours is made for Goliath, so I'm kind of short, but I can actually see you here, so I'm grateful for this. If you uh, have your copy of God's Word, I ask you to open up to the book of Acts, where we'll spend the remainder of our morning, the book of Acts. Thankful for the shepherds inviting me to be here with you this morning, um, as I had the opportunity to pray of what we could talk about this morning. I was challenged in an area that I'm always challenged in. I'm, I'm an evangelist at heart, and so I always feel the mandate to make Christ known and to preach Christ wherever we go. And so this morning we'll be in the book of Acts. If you are a note taker, I've entitled this message, The Mandate to Be a Witness. And as we have the time to explore God's Word, we'll actually see that it's a privilege to be God's witness. So if you will, read with me verses 1 through 8, and our focus this morning will actually be on verses 6 and 8. Luke writes in Acts 1.1, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then our verses for this morning, 6. So when, he had, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remote parts of the earth. The Acts of the Apostles is the second volume written by Luke. Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, and then he also writes the book of Acts, and they originally circulated together as one single document. Luke's purpose in writing this book of Acts is so that his friend Theophilus may know with certainty what he was taught. We see this back in Luke's chapter 1. He says, in verse 3, it seems fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This is Luke's purpose in writing. He's writing the book of Acts as the history and the formation of the early church. He's writing the book of Acts so that we may have an historical account to refer to of the early church and also the background to all the epistles that we read. His focus is on the birth and the expansion of the church leading up to the time of his own age. 
His first scroll, we call it the Gospel of Luke, focuses on the life and the ministry of Christianity's founder, the Lord Jesus Christ. The second scroll picks up and carries the story on to the arrival of the Apostle Paul in Rome. The, the account here in Acts we're going to see picks up with the closing hours of Jesus' earthly ministry, the period between Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension into heaven. Luke proceeds to record the new religion that has taken over the world. His primary focus, though, is not to write a historical account alone. See, Luke is focusing on writing the meaning of history from a theological perspective. Luke is seeking to write the meaning of history from God's vantage point, the meaning of history that's rooted in the perfect, perfect purposes and decrees of God. We'll see, uh, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see how Luke is explaining how God is reaching down into the goo of fallen humanity, how he's reaching down into the muck and into the mire, and it's a sinful man's condition, and how he, that same God, is choosing to save some hell-bound men and women, how that same God is bringing them into fellowship with himself and with each other, and how that same God begins to work in their lives in such a way that he brings glory to his son, Jesus Christ. Our verses for this morning actually acts as the outline for the book of Acts. You can basically divide the book of Acts into three major categories. You see the gospel going out to the city of Jerusalem, the gospel going out to the region, and then the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. So verses 8 this morning is the blueprint, if you will. And Luke is showing how the, the apostle goes out and they are uh, obeying Christ's command to preach the gospel. So I'll read them once again, verses 6 through 8, and then we'll pray and beg the Lord for his help this morning. Verse 6, Luke writes, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remote parts of the earth. Let us pray. Dear Father, what a joy it is to be hidden in Christ, to be found not having a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness credited to me by his perfect work on my behalf. Father, I thank you for your people here the reminder of your kingdom, how it's great, how it's vast, how you rule and reign over people's heart across the nation. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us. Help us this morning as we seek to understand the truth of the scriptures that you've inspired. As we seek to worship our Savior, as we hear the proclaiming of his word. Dear Jesus. We love you, and we praise you for who you are. We ask that you get glory for yourself this morning, as you always do. You would help us, and that our time together would deepen our love and our affections for you. May the river of our love grow wider and deeper this morning as our prayer. All to your glory, your name, amen. If you are a note taker, I'll have basically three major points of this morning. 
As we look at the mandate to be a witness, you'll see that Christ commissions your call to be a witness, that the Holy Spirit empowers your call to be a witness, all for the purpose of your call, that is to be a witness. So let's look at our first point. Christ commissions you to be a witness. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Luke says they were asking him. Who's him? Jesus. More specifically, the Lord Jesus Christ. Even more specifically, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if we want to understand the gravity of who it is that commissions you to be a witness, we have to understand the backdrop to our passage. The background to our passage is everything that Luke records for us in the Gospel of Luke. We remember the life of Christ. Luke helps us understand the ministry of Christ, the work of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the miracles of Christ. But we cannot forget that Luke tells us also about the cross of Christ, about the death of Christ, about the torturous, brutal, hostile murder of Christ. In Luke 23, 33, when they came to the place called the Skull There they crucified him. Verse 46 of the same chapter, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Friends, Jesus died. Luke says, he breathed his last. They hung him on a cross. He died a sinner's death. They placed him in the grave and rolled rolled a stone in front of the tomb. The story should be over. From a human perspective, there should never be a book of Acts. Just a dead Messiah at the end of the gospel account. The crucifixion of Christ displayed in Luke's gospel is represented as a gross miscarriage of justice. But regardless to how it's depicted in the gospel, Jesus still died. The disciples knew that he had died. In fact, they were so convinced that he died, they began to go home. You can get the logic, right? Well, he was a nice guy. I liked him when he was here. He did many good miracles, but now he's dead. I'm going home. I believed in him while he was alive. But to give my life for the mere memory of a Messiah is foolish. I'm going home. In fact, the Gospel of John tells us that Peter says, I'm going fishing. He says, I'm going back to my old life. From a human perspective, the story should be over. The high king of heaven hanging from a tree as a dead man. But the reality, brothers and sisters, is that same high king of heaven is the one in our passage that commissions you and I to tell the world that that death was a part of his plan. His sacrificial death is not the end of the story because on the third day he rose from the grave. Jesus did not stay in the tomb. Paul tells us in Romans 4.25, he who was delivered up for our transgressions was what? Raised for our justification. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered the grave. Friends, Jesus is alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 
3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He rose from the grave and he began showing himself to the disciples. His appearances were so convincing that the disciples eventually were drawn back together. They didn't come together for mere philosophies or mere ideologies. They didn't come together because Jesus was a good teacher. No, they came back together because the Jesus that they had known and the Jesus that they had loved was alive. He beat the grave. See, friends, Christianity is a historical religion. It's rooted in history. Not so with any other religion. You can, you can remove any other religion and they're found from one another and you'll still have that religion exist. But this is not the case with Christianity. If you take away the history, if you take away the historical reality of Christianity, if you try to reduce it to mere ideologies or ideas or philosophy, true Christianity evaporates. Why? Because Christianity is indissolubly linked to Christianity's founder, his accomplishments in his life. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is and has always been the object of Christian faith throughout the centuries, is the Jesus Christ who actually lived. He's the Jesus Christ who actually died, and he's the Jesus Christ who actually rose from the grave. Historically, bodily resurrection, and that's your commander-in-chief, and he's the one in these passages that commissions each one of us to be a witness. The question is, are you? Are you fulfilling the mandate to be a witness by your captain, Christ? This is the one who commissions you, brothers and sisters. This is the one before whom the disciples are standing before and they ask this question. Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, as I've studied this, I've grown to love this question. The disciples, as we read in the gospel, ask Jesus a lot of questions. Oftentimes, they were not the wisest questions. <laughs> Especially Peter. He keeps putting his foot in his mouth, doesn't he? But you know what? I think, brothers and sisters, we can be very thankful for this question because this question the disciples asked extracted a great amount of information and instruction and direction that you and I need for this life. Is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, the scripture teaches many things about the future earthly glorious reign of Christ in his kingdom, but not the precise time of his establishment. Lord, is it at this time, the disciple says, that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And this is not an out-of-bounds question. Look back up in verse 3. Jesus was appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning what? The kingdom of God. So the topic is already on the table. They ask him, is it now that you're restoring the kingdom? The disciples thought that the kingdom of God was going to be established by a political earthly power. For them, the Messiah was like a soldier who was going to be strong enough to drive out all of the occupying military forces. In those days, uh, the land was occupied by Rome. So from the Jewish perspective, the Messiah is the one who's going to expel Rome's might and set up the earthly kingdom of David. But note here what Jesus does not do. 
does not correct them. He doesn't say, you got it wrong. He doesn't deny their expectations of a literal earthly kingdom. It shows that their understanding was right. They just were mistaken about the time. If they were mistaken about a literal earthly kingdom, this is a good time for Jesus to correct them. This is a good time for him to set the record straight, but he doesn't. John Stott helps us understand this a little bit better. He says, quote, the verb restoring shows that we, they were expecting a political, territorial kingdom. The noun Israel showed that they were expecting a national kingdom and the adverbial clause at this time that they were expecting an immediate establishment, end quote. The earthly kingdom they were right about, but the timing they were wrong. This is Jesus' response to them. He said, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That sounds familiar. If you're reading the gospel accounts, you get this right. Mark 13, Jesus says, but of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son of Man, but the Father alone. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Moses helps us with this. He says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belongs to the Lord, but the things that are revealed to us belong to our children and us forever. Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus gives them what I believe the equivalent of a first century nunya, as in like nunya business, He's helping the disciples. You can almost see him. He grabs the disciples by the face. Listen, you're, you're focusing on this, fellas. This is what your focus is on, the time, the seasons, and the epochs. And he lovingly corrects their perspective to what they should be focused on. And he gives us that in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my what? My witnesses. This is what's important this is what they needed to be focusing on. Their mission at hand was not to worry about the times and the epochs, but to worry about their mission to be witnesses. Understand, fellas, I'm coming back. Understand I'll establish my earthly kingdom, but that should be the motivation that you use to be a witness, not focusing in on that primarily. And you know, I think, brothers and sisters, we fall into this. This is where I think my heart goes astray. Focusing on things that are not necessarily bad, but things that sometimes distract me from what the mission is to be a witness. Stop worrying about the election or who's in the Oval Office if it doesn't motivate you to be a witness. Stop worrying about the cost of living or the price of gas if it doesn't prompt you to be a witness. Stop worrying about international warfare if it doesn't compare you to be a herald that the king is coming back. Stop worrying about the next time that the Chiefs will win the Super Bowl. History says you won't be alive when it happens. <laughs> Just saying. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what the mission is. That's what the mandate is, to be a witness. It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you 
thou be my witnesses. And this is a good condition for us to be in, brothers and sisters, always knowing that he's coming back, always knowing that the sky's going to crack one day and being urgent to tell people the truth of the gospel. You are a sinner and you need a savior and God has provided him. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ, come to him. He accepts all who dies to themselves and turn to him. That's the message. And we are the vessels that herald this message. Continued vigilance and anticipation serves as true incentive to live with urgency and to minister with passion. Jesus says, fellas, stop worrying about the time. We're not sent into the world to be prophets. We're sent into the world to witness. Are you witnessing? Jesus says after that, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, which brings me to our next point, because if you are going to be uh, filled, if you're going to complete the mission or fulfill the mission that Christ has called you to, you're going to need power to do that. And Jesus tells us that in our next point, the Holy Spirit empowers you to be a witness. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is the endowment that we need, brothers and sisters, before we can do anything for Christ. A soldier, he doesn't go into war without his rifle. A warrior does not go into battle without his sword. And neither should we be engaged in the business of trying to win souls without the power that the Holy Spirit gives us. He is the one who animates life and empowers the believer to be successful in the mission that Christ has called us to, to spread the good news. Think back to the Gospels for a minute if you can. Think about all the bonehead things the disciples said and did. I mean, we just mentioned Peter a moment ago, right? That guy was foolish. If you understand rightly that these are the men that Christ are going to use to send the Gospel to the ends of the earth, they're going to need help, right? They can't do it themselves. Remember, he's standing right now in the book of Acts talking to 11 guys. And he just told them, you're going to take this message to the ends of the earth. You can imagine them, like, looking at each other, whispering. Did he say the ends of the earth? Peter, did he just say the ends of the earth? Um, Excuse me, Jesus. Did you really mean the ends of the earth? Did. Right? He did, but he tells them, you will receive power. It's, It's actually plural. Down south, they say, y'all, y'all will receive power, is what Jesus is saying when the Holy Spirit comes. This is, this is to take possession of. Dunamis is the word for power. It's, it's might, it's power, it's capability. When the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to receive dunamis, is what Jesus is saying. John 15, 26, Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Again, in chapter 16 of John, he says, But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's verse 7 and 8 of John 16. If the disciples were going to be agents of a worldwide geographical expansion of Christianity, they were first going to need power for the task that comes from the Holy Spirit. And as we get into chapter 2 of the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit came. 
he came and he truly empowered them. Verse 4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in, tongue, in other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Just as Jesus had promised, the Spirit came and they went forth and they became witnesses. They told the world about this Jesus Christ, the God-man sent from heaven to be the redeemer of all those who would come to him. Their message splashed out and made ripples like in a pond. And they got this power, this courage, this boldness from the Spirit. So who is the Spirit? The Spirit is the divine person, the third divine person of the Godhead. He's to his nature 100% God. He is the one who convicts the world of sin. He brings the new birth and gives life, uh, gives new nature to those who are spiritually dead. He places all believers into the true church, the body of Christ. He indwells them permanently. He seals them for the day of redemption. He bestows on them spiritual gifts and control all those who are yielding to him. He is God very God, the one promised by Jesus to come, John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, at the moment of your salvation, you were made a witness for Christ. His spirit took out your heart of stone. He replaced it with the heart of flesh. He gave you new life in Christ. He permanently takes up residence in you, and he empowers you to be a witness for Christ. Are you using the power that God has given you? The Holy Spirit is the only sufficient power for the mission that Christ has given us. The spirit who indwells us is the power that compels us to go to the world. Are you empowered? Are, are you a believer? Then you have a mandate to witness, brothers and sisters, and it's a privilege that we get. Because the spirit of God, he has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching Christ and him crucified to redeem men and to bring them to himself up from the miry pit and set them upon the rock of ages. The Spirit leads us in all truth. He makes us feel the force of that truth. He grips our hearts with the truth. He writes the uh, truth upon our hearts. He applies the truth to our minds for understanding. The Spirit takes the fool. He takes the rebel. He takes the dead sinner, and he makes them to know the wonders of redeeming love. If you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, meaning you have new life in Christ, you've been given the faith to believe in Christ, you then know the wonders of redeeming love, and therefore you have been already empowered to be a witness. The question is, how are we doing with that? Because if you are a believer, you have the power. Are you exercising it? Are you sharing Christ? Are you preaching Christ? You've been empowered for this purpose by the Spirit, and that brings us to our last and final point. The purpose that you're here on earth is to be a witness. Jesus says, And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remote parts of the earth, or the end of the earth is the better translation. At this point, Christianity is just a few people who've been converted under the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now here, the Lord is passing on the baton like a track meet. 
He's given the baton to his disciples. It's their responsibility now. They must tell others. Thomas Brooks, a famous Puritan, he says, A soul under assurance is unwilling to go to heaven without company. If you've been purchased by the blood of Christ, if you've been empowered by the Spirit, then your job is to witness. And look at what Jesus says here. This is interesting to me because you would think that Jesus would give them a task to do, right? You think Jesus would say, you're going to go out and you're going to be witnessing for me. But he doesn't say that. He says, you will be my witnesses. This is not something to do. This is a people to be. This is natural to the believer, to be a witness of Christ, to preach the gospel to other people. It's a future indicative. There's no probability in it. It's a certainty from the Savior. You will be, not you probably might happen to stumble upon and perhaps, no. You will be my witnesses. What were they to witness about? They were to witness about what had been revealed. They were to make known all the doctrines that Jesus had preached to them. From this point on in their lives, their job was to be devoted to the proclamation of God's coming and his spiritual kingdom to be established, which means they were to preach and to teach men and women everywhere that they encountered of entrance into the kingdom through faith and repentance. Jesus outlines it out for them really well in Matthew 28, Right, similar situation before he's about to ascend, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This was the disciples' responsibility, and brothers and sisters, this is our responsibility. We're supposed to be witnesses to the world of what Christ has done. We have the same missions as the disciples because we are disciples of Christ. This word here that we translate witness, marturos, it's the same word we get the English word martyr from. They were to witness for Christ. To be a first century witness for Christ was almost synonymous with martyrdom. They were likely to die. And to be a witness in many parts of the world for Christ today is a, you're likely to die. And by God's grace, we don't experience martyrdom a lot in this country. Persecutions to some degrees, but not often martyrdom or loss of life. But that doesn't reduce the call from our captain to be a witness. It doesn't change anything for you and I. Jesus makes this clear, Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. This was was not some flashy statement uh, meant to get applause by Jesus. This was a cause to be counted because suffering and persecution and martyrdom and ostracism is a price to be paid for being a witness for the Lord, a price that has been willingly being paid throughout Christian centuries, and it's a price that you and I have to decide if we're willing to pay. The call is to be a witness, to preach Christ, to go where the sinner's at, call them to repentance, and then show them where mercy is at. Jesus Christ, 
the image of the invisible God. Do you know him? You need him, even if you don't recognize it. Not a witness of what you might have heard or what other people believe, but a witness of what you know to be true for yourself. John makes this clear for us. 1 John 1, 3, we have seen and heard what we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Your witness, a reteller of Christian truths. You don't have a new message. You just preach the same message. So here's my question. Do the people in your life know you're a disciple of Christ? Do they know that you're a child of God? I'm not talking about the people here in these four walls. I'm talking about the people out there, your coworkers, your friends, the people you bump shoulders with on a day-to-day basis. Do they hear Christ come out of your mouth? Do you preach Christ to them? This is easy for me to say, right? You're a pastor. You're around Christians all the time. It's for all of us. There's no caveats here. Where were the disciples to be witnesses, and where are we to be witnesses? Well, simply put, in all places. Jesus tells them both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Everywhere. Wherever you work, wherever your kids go to school, wherever the opportunities, those unbelieving family members, guys just had Thanksgiving. They were probably there, right? Did they hear Christ? If we take a closer look at what Jesus is saying here, though, we see something pretty fascinating. I'm going to ask you to bear with me as I try to work through this. Jesus gives us a clue here that he's not merely talking about geographical locations. He gives us a clue. There's a logical inconsistency in what Jesus chooses to emphasize. Look at what he says first. He says, you will be my witnesses both in, what's the first place? Jerusalem. That's the gospel going to a city, right? Then he says, in Judea and Samaria. That's the gospel going to a region. Then he ends with this phrase, and even to the ends of the earth. Now, I want to be clear From Luke's perspective, the ends of the earth is Rome. The first century mind don't see anything past Rome. That's the ends. That's the boundaries for them. But why does Jesus choose to employ these words? Well, a closer look at it tells us that the ends of the earth can be traced back to the Old Testament. This phrase, ends of the earth, in three particular places. Isaiah 49, you can jot them down and read them later. Isaiah 49, Psalm 72, in Psalm 22, Isaiah 49, Psalm 72, and Psalm 22. We don't have the time to go through all of them, but they're all three Messianic passages. And each of us gives them, each of them give us insight into what Jesus is trying to communicate here. I'll briefly cover two and we'll read the third one in detail. Psalm 22, we know this. It's a familiar passage to us, the suffering servant passage. It starts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first half of the psalm indicates for us the suffering servant and his brutal death. But the second half of the psalm shows us the psalmist, I mean, the suffering servant is vindicated. 
that, that he earns the reward for his suffering. And in that context, Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven, 27, it says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. So part of the vindication of the suffering servant is that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. It's part of the reward. Psalm 72 is very similar in that, in that uh, Solomon's writing here, he's explaining the messianic rule, the, the rule of the king, the righteous king. And he explains how the rule is not just over portions of the cosmos, but that it extends to the far-reaching parts of the cosmos. And because his reign extends, he says this, may of uh, Psalm 72, verse 8, may he also rule from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. What's Solomon's point? The king's rule is so vast that he must rule over everything, the ends of the earth, all peoples, all tribes, not just Jerusalem or Judea. He deserves more. And then Isaiah 49, turn there with me in your Bibles, if you will. We'll read a nice section out of here. But just to give a background of what's going on here, this is the servant, the faithful servant of Yahweh and his reward for his faithfulness and for his greatness. So Isaiah 49, uh, Isaiah's writing about the servant, and now he's, be, he's receiving the reward for his faithful service and his greatness. And it says this in starting in verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. This is the servant speaking. From my body of my mother, he made my name to be remembered. He has set my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadows of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has also set me as a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. Verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show forth my beautiful glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my might for nothing in vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with Yahweh and my reward with my God. So now, says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to return Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am glorified in the sight of Yahweh, and my God is my strength. This is what God says to him, the sufferings, uh, to the servant. This is God speaking now in verse 6. He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribe of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return. I will also give you as a light of the nation so that my salvation may be reached to the ends of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, the Holy One. Jesus employs this term, this phrase that reflects back to the fact that he's the Messiah and that the extent of his rule is too great for just Israel alone, that it must encompass all peoples, all tribes, all nations. He knows who he is. He knows the extent of his ministry and what's going to happen because of what he has accomplished. And this is the, uh, the phrase that he employs to the disciples. You will be my witnesses. Where? To the ends of the earth. And because the disciples took that literally, they went out and they spread the gospel around the ends of the earth. And here in Newton are recipients of the work that they've done because they took the mandate seriously. Because they knew that Messiah's worth was higher than anything that they can just contain in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. They had to go to the ends of the earth. The question that I have for you, brothers and sisters, is 
Jesus worth more than just your soul? Do, do you have a mandate to preach Christ? Is it okay if you are in heaven by yourself? Or does Jesus deserve more worship than just us? Is Newton Bible Church enough for Jesus? Jesus is too great. He's too worthy. He's so lovely and magnificent. Will that be what motivates you to tell your neighbors? Tell your friends? Every tribe, every tongue, every nation of what John depicts for us in Revelation. Are you want to be a part of that? You want to make that happen? We have a mandate, a privilege to be a witness for Christ. So what about your neighbor? Talk to him over the fence. What about your coworkers? Is Christ worthy of their worship? I think he is. And so we have to take this mandate to be a witness serious. Charles Spurgeon says something that's really helpful for me, you guys. He says this, quote, I will not believe that you have tasted the honey of the gospel if you can eat it all yourself. True grace puts an end to all spiritual monopoly, end quote. When you understand what Jesus calls us to do, when you understand the beauty and the privilege that it is, it's not if I am called to be a witness. This is a mandatory obligation of you and me. Some of you here in Newton, some of you in the surrounding states and cities, and some of you have to go to other countries and other nations. Will you go? Will you obey? Romans 10, Paul says, how will they call on him whom they not believed? How will they believe in him who they not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are what? Sent. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. If you are a believer in Christ, you have experienced the reality of being born again, and therefore you're called to be a witness. Starting here, some of you, this is true for me, starting with the own kids in your household. So how do we do this? Well, there's many ways that can be done. I have a few here, and then I'll be done, because I'm probably over time already, am I? All right. First thing you can do is pray. You can pray for the salvation of the nations. You can pray for the salvation of those in Newton. You can pray for your unsaved family members, co-workers, friends, children, grandchildren. And you can pray specifically how the Lord will use you in that work, whether you're going to be a planter or a waterer of the gospel seed. The next, preach Christ. Everywhere you go, tell of the wonderful work that he has done. The gospel is the only tool that God uses to save people. So preach it. Preach it. Next, reflect on your own salvation. Meditate upon what the Lord has done in your life. This will cultivate within your heart thanksgiving and praise. And then being a witness is easy after that when you realize what he's done for you. Express joy. This one's interesting in my own heart. We've received the greatest gift in the world, salvation. Don't mope around. Act, act like you got the greatest gift in the world. Being joy. Use the church, number five. This is the training ground. This is where you're equipped to be sent out. 
This is where we come to learn how to preach the gospel. Where we get uh, fellowship, we, we learn how to preach the gospel to each other so we can take it out there. Use the church. Be equipped so you can be sent out. And then the last one, have a sense of urgency. Have a sense of urgency. Tomorrow's not promised. The only breath you were guaranteed is the one you just took. Be urgent. Jesus, or Luke, shows for us the sense of urgency. If you're not there, turn back to Acts, and I'll finish reading a section from here. Go back to Acts chapter 1. This introduction closes this way. Look at verse 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up. And while they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Like, why are you wasting time? What are you doing? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just in the same way you have watched him go into heaven. Brothers and sisters, this Jesus who has been taken up into heaven will one day come back. And that's imminent. We don't know when he's coming. So we got business to take care of. We got work to do. We got people to be witnesses. We need to be going out calling sinners to, sinners to repentance. That's our work. And maybe some of you in here are unbelievers. This Jesus who was taken up into heaven will come back the same way. You don't have another day to waste. This is the day of salvation. Flee from your sins. Run to the Savior where you will find him to be sweet and perfect. And you will find forgiveness of your sins. If you will bow the knee to him, confess your sins, you will find him to be the Savior that you desperately, desperately need. Amen? Let me pray. Dear Father in heaven, what a beautiful reminder that you have made us witnesses. That the reality of what you've done in our soul, we get the opportunity to preach that to other people. Dear Spirit, you know our feebleness. You know our weakness. You know that we prioritize other things above this. So I ask for your help, for your mercy, for your grace, that you would help us to represent Christ to this dying world. They need it, and we love you, and so we want to do it. We beg for your help. In our Savior's name, amen.